Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together visionaries, scientists, healers, artists, and seekers. I'm so grateful that I get to interview these extraordinary thought leaders and share their wisdom with you. And I love listening to the conversations that are led by my co-host and dear friend, Cleo Wade. Cleo is a beautiful poet and author. I deeply admire her and the way she keeps her heart open to the world. Together, we believe that engaging in open-minded, honest, and sometimes difficult conversations has the power to change our lives. All right, over to Cleo. My guest today is Aliza Pressman, who is the host of the award-winning podcast called Raising Good Humans. Aliza is a developmental psychologist, a mother, and the author of a new book out this month called The Five Principles of Parenting. I read this book and I loved it. It's an incredible resource and guide for parents or any grown-ups who are raising children. In this conversation, Aliza shares her parenting wisdom and really what it means to raise resilient kids. I love that her approach is both science-backed and also so full of empathy and compassion. Okay, let's dive into my conversation with Aliza Pressman. Okay, Aliza Pressman, I am so excited to be having this conversation with you because in the beginning of your new book, The Five Principles of Parenting, you kind of go through the different archetypes of new parents, the people who want to dive into every single book and the people who don't want to read anything. And I was certainly the person who didn't want to read anything. And so I think your book is the first parenting book I ever sat down to read the entire book. And I listened to your podcast. I mean, your your podcast on siblings that are really near in age radically changed how I raise and talk to my older daughter, Memphis, as her sibling by you was coming into the world. So you have been such a huge part of my parenting journey. So I'm so grateful for your time and all that you do because it really truly does feel like somebody who is 
living in spirit and doing a vocation. And it's such an offering to the world, not only that you share your curiosities, which is such a vulnerable space, but the way that you alchemize your curiosities into these really amazing plans for other people to help get them out of a tough spot. So I'm so grateful. I love this book. Thank you so much. That means so much to me because you mean so much to me and I'm so honored. I really am. I guess I want to first, for anyone who may not know your work, I want to talk about developmental psychology, how you fell into it, which I don't mean that to say that it wasn't intentional because it's a, it's an act of choosing and rechoosing for you. I know that, but it was it's a kind of cool journey how you got there. Yes. If my younger self knew that this is what I was doing, it would be a big surprise. And I failed psych one in college. (laughs) So it just was not my path. And I just didn't even think twice about it because I was like, well, I'm not applying to graduate school and I'm certainly not applying to graduate school in psychology. So I just sort of moved along. I was working with kids at a, a program in New York where they just, their mothers were being supported by therapists and they needed kids and kind of caregivers to play with them. And I learned about play therapy. And this is a very long-winded way of saying that in doing that, I realized that I was, I wanted to get into this world of children, but the program that I wanted to apply to, uh, it was drama therapy. And the head of the program said to me, well, you can't apply in the middle of the year, but here are four classes or five classes you should take because they give you kind of the foundations in psychology that you didn't get in college. So I took them and psychology is so fascinating because it has so many branches and most people think of abnormal psychology, which turns into clinical psychology as all of it, which is kind of looking at psychopathology and looking at what's going wrong it's a very important field because there are interventions that are designed and, you know, we, we get so much out of this work, but I started learning about developmental psychology and I, my, my mind was blown and developmental psychology is this tiny little field that studies how we come to be who we are and how we change over time in our social, emotional, and cognitive development. And like, all of the things that contribute to who we are. And when I started studying that and just looking at like infants and their caregivers and how that plays out over time, I, I don't know what happened, but I was just like, what, this is everything. This is, you don't even need to be a parent to find, I wasn't a parent. I was just fascinated. And so that's how I kind of switched gears. And I found out this was a whole field. You know, something I think that really scares people about psychology and therapies of all kinds is being diagnosed or yes kind of prescribed things that feel like you know because I think what ha- happens a lot for my friends because I'm sure you have friends like this who are your smartest coolest wisest friends who are anti-therapy and like they've yep. just never been and it's so interesting because you feel like most people who are into feeling attuned with themselves, you know, really want that kind of space to exercise how the mental and emotional click. But what I found is that a lot of my friends who are kind of not into going to therapy are the people who just feel that they're going to get a, like, there's a one size fits all to whatever they're going through. 
and they don't want to end up having some blanket prescription for like, oh, well, you just have this. So you just have have to do this. this. You know, they want something that really looks at the whole of who they are and is living in the same curiosity of the human condition that they live in themselves. And they're afraid or have had bad experiences where a therapist was kind of like, it's just this, it's just this, just do this. And I think that obviously parenting, you're so vulnerable and you're so scared and you're so, you know, you're, I mean, I think, I I mean, I remember the first time someone, and I think I was still breastfeeding Memphis. I was six months, maybe six, she was six months old. And someone said, you're a good mom to me. And I just burst into tears because you, it's so, you're so afraid of the labels that come with parenting, just like you're afraid with the labels that come in, you know, general therapy of like, oh, you're an anxious detacher or you're this or you're, you know, you're just scared or someone being like, well, you're fundamentally a good person or like all those things feeling so affirming or so scary. And what I loved about your book is that you really like, I think, make sure the reader and the parent knows off the bat that like, this is a book about wondering about ourselves so that we can strengthen ourselves. Yeah. And I thought that that was really interesting. And and I think that that's something that is so beautiful you do in the world of developmental psychology in general. And is that kind of like a a basic principle? Because I know that you've obviously created all of these, you know, behavioral developmental spaces, whether it's out, what is it at Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai. And so would you say that that is kind of the core of how you feel you have to approach this so that people can feel capable? I, yes, I believe in a strength-based approach mm-hmm. and I live in a, in a, in an industry that is kind of, especially over the last decade, but it kind of commodifies the deficit approach and the deficit model. And I really feel like that fear plays into our deepest pain and worry of not being like, like you said, you started to cry hearing that you're just a good mother, just that. Yeah. And I really believe that this book and my work and in general, this field is about unfolding who we are and discovering who we are and discovering how to support raising who our humans are. And that's just a different lens. Like the way I see it, my lenses are just a different shade and it's really just an interesting way for me to approach working with parents and families and caregivers and healthcare providers, because I'm not pathologizing being a human being. And there is, there is something like, none of that is to criticize the very important work of understanding when there is psychopathology. Yeah. So I am like a huge, I, I don't have, I have a very boring middle path way of thinking, but so none of this feels like the only way this is just one way. And I think it's disarming for mothers in particular, because it's just exhausting to feel like every move you make is going to have a massive impact on your child's growth and development and on your own. And I just really want to be a relief in this kind of space that feels like we just, we just have to get it right. Yeah. I think something that I really felt 
in reading your book is that you helped us to lower the stakes where the stakes needn't be so high. And I think that's the hard part is because, because heightening the stakes of every situation is usually run by the motor of anxiety, unless you can kind of regulate the anxiety, you'll keep raising the stakes. Yes. And then, then you're just off to the races and the stakes are high for every little thing. And so there were so many pauses. Also, I thought it was kind of interesting because I could see my friends who are like the biggest hippies in the world loving this book. And then I could see my friends who are like, so type A and totally hate hippies loving this book because (laughs) it really does have that kind of available space for like, and you can try it or you cannot like it. And it can be for you. And, and I really appreciate that because when I was writing Heart Talk or Remember Love, I felt like that's something, oh, I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to like make sure that, you know, I, I saw myself sitting around a group of t- a group of women in my life, knowing that they're all different and have different jobs and have radically different perspectives and some hate spirituality and some love it. And some like, you know, I always joke, like we have a shared friend when I'm always like, I love you, even though you'll never read my books in your whole life. Because she was like, I do not turn inward. Totally. And she is definitely not doing mindfulness exercises. Right. (laughs) And there are still, you know, I would say 50 things in your book that she would be able to absorb into her as like, oh, that's like, oh, that's good to remember. Yeah. Rather than sitting and like, you know, doing your balanced meditation. <laughs> totally. I think, I think that's a great example. This shared friend, she doesn't want the information delivered in the same way that like the hippy dippy friend is wanting the information delivered. And I didn't want to write a book isolating one kind of mother. I really, or one kind of person or one kind of parent. And I really feel like part of that is because I have many different hats and many different outfits. And I don't want to be, I don't know. It depends on the day, how I want to be. And, and because I think in this field, especially now there's, there is a place for all of it. It's just how we're looking at, we're starting to look at this like holistic approach to everything. And so there is no way to kind of avoid all the different parts of who we are when it comes into parenting, because parenting is like the gumbo of ourselves like kind of nourishing our children while they're in the nest. Do you know? Yeah. And so, but I, I'd love to kind of, you know, because you have just this kind of, I, what I love is just the right kind of grounding in kind of, you know, clinical information with spiritual, I guess, without calling it spiritual because it's mindful in a way, but what have you seen because you've been doing this for so long, you know, how have you seen your the the type of work you're leading change with pediatricians change with the the kind of greater medical field like do you find that it's becoming more and more supportive with these ideas is it still kind of a tough place to penetrate no it's so interesting because the whole reason that i even got into working in a hospital is because i was finishing graduate school and one of my friends was a pediatrician running the residency program at Mount Sinai. And she wanted me to guest teach about behavior and development. So I was like, that's so cool. I've never really thought about looking at, you know, I, I, I think about working with caregivers, but I hadn't thought about the healthcare providers who Mm. work with caregivers. So I said, what's the curriculum? And she was like, we don't have a standard curriculum in pediatric 
residency programs for behavior and development. It's kind of whatever you think. And there was something about that that blew my mind because I was like, but pediatricians are for the most part, the first, second and last line of defense of anyone who's supporting caregivers. And especially in those first five years, because in the early years, you have so many well child visits. So I was just kind of blown away by it. And then I felt so excited that there was a world where I, I could make a contribution. I am part of a team. And so all of us together kind of figured out how can we bake in the system of pediatric care and training the importance of supporting social, emotional development, cognitive development, like the whole child and the whole parent. And that was, since that wasn't part of the training, how can we get it into a standard of care? So now we're at almost all residency programs across the country. And we kind of made something that was scalable and the buy-in is incredible. I was just presenting at the American Academy of Pediatrics and like we had packed rooms two days in a row because pediatricians deeply believe in how important mental health and parenting support is for a child's physical health. And they didn't before, but now we, we kind of get it because we're seeing that, you know, your, your early experiences shape your, your cardiovascular health decades later. It's also so crazy because for there to be no standard and to be like, it's whatever you think kind of, you know, is wild because everything we think is usually informed by what we feel. And something I was really reckoning with and, and, and it was so, so great to read in your book was just about this, like, kind of like what sets off your personal alarm systems. And, you know, which I think is like a non-triggering way of saying triggered, um, which I appreciated. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was really cool because you're reminded that, that kind of like, trying to find that space between, as you call it, and that pause where you can say like, Ooh, like what I'm feeling will turn into this pattern of what I'm thinking. And then that will turn into this habit of how I'm reacting, raising, you know, my own inner child, my own child. And so it's really interesting that this idea, I have a very dear friend who works in as an ER doctor and, you know, he talks all the time about how he, he has to work on the you work on the emotional regulating and, and how so many doctors are in need of that yeah. in order to properly diagnose at a critical time or not, you know, whether that's the needs for bias training, the needs for all types of things that we have to do in order to actually regulate the feeling part so that the thinking part can be clear and how we action can be truly helpful and appropriate. Exactly. And that's why what, what I found so interesting working in a hospital was, oh, working with the, the folks who care for the people that I thought I wanted to be caring for. And I do, I work with parents all the time and I work with families, but they, the, it, it all is, is in this kind of meta way. We all need to do the same thing, which is regulate so that we can have the freedom to make the choices that are going to be the best thing medically, the best thing emotionally, the best thing socially, the best thing for connection. But we can't do any of that without, you know, 
the choice, the freedom to make the choice of how we're going to respond. And that is what we, that's why the self-regulation muscle is such an important muscle. And I love that our own growth in our self-regulation impacts our kids with what's called co-regulation, which, you know, I get into a lot in the book because people are always like, how do I make sure my kid is self-regulated? And yes. And like, to me, after you get past the feeling of, you know, I (laughs) saying this is, is sometimes very upsetting at first, but the most powerful environmental influence on our children's growth and development is their parenting environment. And that's terrifying sounding, except when you realize it's not everything. It's just from an environmental perspective. But when you realize like, wait, what's the one thing in the whole world that I can control? Oh, right. Me. And I have a, I have space to influence this human. Okay. That feels much more manageable than trying to control the human that I'm trying to raise, which you can't do. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy-efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cookstoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. If there is one thing I underlined, took a photo of, sent to 10 of my friends and my partner, it is the line from your book that says that our children have the ability to borrow off of our own nervous system. And it's so interesting because while I am not a person who's read a lot of children's psychology books, I have read exactly one and that is yours, but... I've read a ton of psych books. I mean, I haven't loved a book like this probably since I read the mindset book, you know, 20 years ago. Oh my God. And so I, you know, there's certain books that are my, my Bibles that are psych books that nonviolent communication. I mean that I, I could go on and on. And, and so, you know, I, what I loved about this line of borrowing from your nervous system is that it was really interesting because there was two things I immediately felt, which is one that there's this James Baldwin quote that I reference all the time, which is that children are never very good at listening to their elders, but they never fail to imitate them. And I'm always reminded by observing my own children, how often they're imitating, whether it's like if Memphis comes in, who's going to be four in two weeks and comes in and is like, I'm like, what did she watch? Like, I'm always like, what is the thing that I know she's imitating even in on the most lighthearted, like personality today vibe? Yeah. 
And when you realize, or you can observe as a parent, which is very clear in, in its observations, you can tell that just one new show they watch, that they have a different personality or one new friend they meet, that they have an entirely different way of talking yeah, to you. Totally. That if that is happening on the lightest possible level, like, you know, all of these things are energies that are just find different homes that are deeper and deeper within us. So how could they not be absorbing and inheriting, you know, the kind of your, your nervous system, or at the very least imitating it until they're out of the nest and really getting into, you know, what you call, you know, the age of becoming wise, starting around 18 to your twenties and can really develop their own nervous system. And I'd love for you to kind of go into that because I loved it so much. And it, and it actually really, it was a huge light bulb moment and affirmation for me. It can be intimidating to think that our children are borrowing our nervous system. Cause I think one of the real secrets of being an adult is that you're like, I'm not finished. <laughs> like I'm yeah. still developing. How am I? I'm not, you know, it's, it's a strange feeling when I think your kids get older, your teenagers are looking at you and they're like, wait, you're human. Mm-hmm. But I think when we understand that human beings, it's not just our kids that borrow our nervous systems, but everybody in our orbit. Mm-hmm. So like that, that saying that people always say, you know, nobody can make you feel a certain way. I don't know how this became part of the world. Like, of course, somebody can make you feel a certain way because we are all interconnected and interconnected. And if you go into a room and people are laughing hysterically, you're going to feel something. You're probably going to start smiling or giggling and you don't know what the joke was. Mm -hmm. You're borrowing the nervous system of the people around you. And when you are a developing nervous system and you have this primary caregiver and secondary caregivers around you, of course, their capacity to manage their system because they have a grown up system that's fully developed is going to get baked into your wiring. Like it's just the experience over and over again of no, with no words necessarily, but just seeing that every time, for example, you're having a meltdown as a toddler or as a teenager, frankly, that let's just use you as an example. Let's say your, your kids are having meltdowns and they're so dysregulated and they're so upset. If you meet them where they are and have a dysregulated nervous system and panic and try to fix it and run around and say like, will this make you happy? Will that make you happy? There is more work on your part, right? Like that's exhausting and it usually doesn't do anything. But the message in that is, I guess when I'm feeling dysregulated, there's something very wrong versus the message of my Cleo, my mother seems to be okay right now and able to hold down this foundation while I'm dysregulated. I guess it's not an emergency. Yeah. And it's not because you're like, nothing's wrong. You're fine. It's because in your body, you know, they are safe and that feelings aren't dangerous. And eventually after multiple experiences, they believe it themselves. 
and become more self-regulated or when they're dysregulated, start to have a practice of taking a breath or, you know, punching in their passcode, like I said, in the book and to their alarm system. So our work, instead of running around chasing our kids to fix their feelings is to manage our feelings and get our system regulated enough to believe that there isn't an emergency. And in the very act of doing that, they can borrow our nervous system until theirs is fully developed. And it doesn't happen overnight. It takes years and years. But that's why if you look back on your life and you think, do I get panicked when I'm upset? Do I feel freaked out when somebody says something I don't like? Or do I hear them because I know that feelings aren't dangerous and I can handle this and then I can be in communication with them? Chances are, whatever your response to that question is, has a lot to do with your early experiences and then how you came to terms with them. You know, we, we have these early experiences where we're wiring and then we can look back in our later experiences and say, I wonder where this is coming from or where this came from. I bet to this day, if I get upset in front of my father, he will go into a panic because yep. the idea of it is too distressing for him. Yeah. So for a lot of my early adult life, if I felt uncomfortable, that made me panic. Like something was very wrong and it takes adult work to go, no, I'm just uncomfortable and I can survive this feeling. I have tools to get through this. So with our young children, if they get that early, and by the way, my father was loving and well-meaning. It's not that he was doing, he was actually doing it because he thought it was cruel not to do it. Yeah. But there is this ease that comes with coming to terms with the fact that just our own breath and our own nervous system can help our young children and older children regulate so that they aren't afraid of feelings. Something your book really gifted me was this space to reflect on worry because, you know, worry is ultimately this really beautiful, protective response to wanting to keep safe something we love. And, but if we don't reflect on worry, we don't really know how it manifests for us. Because I think sometimes I feel that worry looks like, like if I'm just not thinking about it from my own heart, but if I'm noticing it in the world, I notice worry in like a kind of Eeyore way, like worry is always like, oh gosh, like, but worry can actually be a piglet. And, and because, but usually I would say that that's like spinning out or going crazy or like, you know, or getting really anxious or getting like, really like nervous. And I didn't really give myself space to reflect on like kind of worry being manifesting as a piglet in that way, if that makes sense. Yes. And so I could also give a lot of, you know, places where I've had judgment for myself or, you know, even other people I love in my family or whatever, where I was like, whoa, like that actually that nervousness was, was worry and worry is trying to protect the loved thing. And we can actually just work on how the worry manifests. And, and I thought that was really interesting. And, and, you know, when you read books, like getting the love you want or there, you know, there's such an emphasis on what you also emphasize, which is that kind of space between, which is almost like, I think the parenting you're doing when you say nothing at all and are just there 
So like, to me, I have different mantras that are, you know, um, all the time when I'm just in the kitchen, I could just be cooking dinner and the kids are in there. And just to kind of bring mindfulness to chopping, I just like have a mantra where I'll say, I'm okay. It's okay. We're okay. And I'll, I'll just say it all the time because I have such a deep belief in fundamental okayness and that just being like kind of a base that I think is, I always someplace we can get to, like, I don't think we can always get to thriving and I don't think we can always get to a good day, but I do think, okay, is, is usually in our reach, even in the, on the worst day ever, like to just Mm -hmm. have a, in a single breath, it says I'm okay. And I felt that there was such an offering of, of that in this book also, which is that we, there's such a possible path to okay in how you parent and how much of the parenting happens when you're not saying the rule or doing the thing or da 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 da. It's actually in how you move and how you regulate and how you get freaked out or and how you you know become however your worry manifests. And I and I, I thank you for that because it gave me a lot of space to to reflect. So I do want to have you talk to us about what are the five principles of parenting, you know, because that is the title of this book (laughs) and, and they're all R's and they lead to the big R, which I also loved, but I'd love for you to kind of, for the person who wants to pick up this book and might be intimidated or might not really know what it's about. And it's also hard to be like, here's the five principles. And you're like, really, what are they? Like, this is crazy. So I want to know, I want to share them with our, with our peeps. Okay. And I want to tell you that I also just want to say, cause I remember your fundamental okayness from when you were, when I first met you, when you had, when you wrote your first children's book. And I think that there is not enough emphasis on growing human beings who are who really understand okayness. So I don't want to gloss over that because I think a lot of the problem with how we're all doing is the expectation of something much of thriving all the time or something must be terrible. Something must be so wrong if there's just an okayness. Mm-hmm. And, and I also think there's a lot of pressure in general, and then I will answer your question, but I do think there's a lot of pressure in general to be exceptional. And of course we want all of our kids and we, all of our kids to us are exceptional and we are all exceptional. And also we're just people (laughs) doing our thing. And And a good day is exceptional. Like, you know, and I think that sometimes to, if your overall is I'm okay. Or I'm just getting through. And then you just might have one. I flew with my kids yesterday to new Orleans and it was kind of just us. My mom was there, but she wasn't sitting with us. And I hadn't flown kind of like leading the charge with my kids in a while. And I don't, and I'm not someone who brings my kids everywhere. Like, I think some people are really good at being like, everywhere I go, my kids go. And I'm like, I don't want to be the person with the screaming child on the flight. So they had to just get to the point where I knew they'd relax on the plane <laughs> till I would bring them. And I, but my mom is, is a little nervous. So she's not like really like my best sidekick for like a, <laughs> like if I'm kind of like, woo, like, is this day going to be a doozy? 
You're not borrowing so, her calm. <laughs> I'm not borrowing from her nervous system. I'm <laughs> reacting to it. So, <laughs> and so I'm going through the airport and da, 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 and then I call Simon on the plane and I'm just like, I cannot get over how great these kids were in this thing. And I was also just like, oh, I can do this. And sometimes, you know, we have to kind of like find okayness through the nervousness where I said to myself before, I was like, my kind of personal pep talk was, no matter what today looks like, because just airports are stressful, children in public are stressful. I was like, you know what, no matter what it looks like, it's okay. And no matter how they kind of roll through the day, it's okay. And so, and it ended up being great because of that. And it felt like such an awesome day for me, but it was also because it wasn't like, oh, listen, like as long as I just only have one meltdown, it'll be da da da. I was just like, it just doesn't matter. Like we can just like go into this day and whatever happens, happens like anybody else in the world, like, and we're going to give ourselves certain things like extra time so that like, we don't have to add things like feeling rushed and we don't have to, you know, be stressed and, and we can try to kind of do what we can. But I remember thinking like, wow, this is just, I was, I felt as accomplished as I did after like a book tour day or something. Right. I was just very like, this is great, but it was actually because it was totally okay. Do you know? And I wasn't sitting there being like, oh, we all got upgraded or we all got, it wasn't even like that. It was just, we, it was okay. And they were, and it was great. And everyone got to bed whenever they got to bed. And there wasn't a like, and and I was able to just be like, it can just like, however it falls, it can lay. And that was a really big, I think that's like just a big moment when you have kids. I mean, you know, I have almost four and a two and a half year old. So to even be able to approach them like that was just like, I didn't feel like super mom by any means. Cause I was like sweating under my armpits and like, <laughs> oh my God. And I like begged for a glass of red wine as soon as I sat down on the plane, but I was just like, it's okay. And also, that's think- so huge. Like, I don't think that's to be undervalued. Like that's, it is. And it feels really good to realize like, I just, we did it. Well, and like, I think so much of it, and it, it was probably helpful that I was reading your book yesterday, but <laughs> so I have to show you, I have the cutest photo of Bayou. She was sleeping and her little toe just creeps up on your book and it has her like sparkle fingernail polish. It was so oh, cute. I have to have um, that. And so, but it was also, I think because the space in between the, like the, the words unseen, like the, which are the stories we tell ourselves was where I actually put the most care for the day. Like I made, you know, the kids stuff, I know how to take care of kids and make sure that they're going to be okay as they get through an airport or whatever. But it was like that your book really reminded me to like, just like care for my nervous system and my own energy. And actually that is what maybe not giving care to that is what makes me so fragile in other moments. Like if we're at a restaurant or if we're da da da, or do you know what I mean? And then that is what they are then responding to. And so it was really, I was grateful because I actually felt like I got to use some of your wisdom yesterday. I, I think that much of the work of this whole thing of being a person is to just pay attention in that way that you did so that these moments don't have to turn into something that yeah gets everybody like turns into a tornado of or that we identify with or we prescribe them with where you're just like 
you know, all the time I hear people be like, oh, they're so tough or this is so da da da, or they're just wild or they're da da da. And I'm always like, I don't know what they are. Like, I really like sit in like the giant question mark of like, who will you become? And, you know, and, and I think that that wonder is so, um, you know, it's what I want for my friends, which I think like, I always joke. I'm like, Memphis every day is like, mom, I don't want to go to school. I want to lay in bed all day and watch movies. And I'm like, damn, I do too. Like, that's the hard part. Like everything (laughs) that you want to do. I so get like these kids really do want the same thing as adults. I'm like, I literally just want to do that. Like truly, like you are speaking my language. Like I do not want to get up and do any of the stuff we have to do today. (laughs) And so do you know when they're just like, I want to like stay up and cuddle. I'm like, yes, I would like to stay up and cuddle. You're oh my my weekends. I mean, having teenagers is funny because you are meeting closer to the place of wanting to be doing the same thing and oh, watching the god. same thing. Oh, and Gilmore Girls. Oh my god, we forget about it. Gilmore Girls was like, you know, when you're you're like, okay, we're just gonna watch one show, <laughs> and. I remember the first time we started Gilmore Girls. I mean, I was so excited and we kept being like, okay, one more episode. (laughs) And it was just like the binge. That was the first binge watching that we did together. And I was like, I love this. And by the way, the pressure, like you can binge watch Gilmore Girls and still have all the wonderful things that your hopes and dreams that, you know, all the hopes and dreams, like, I don't want it to seem like all of this is like, who cares? You just chill and no, you know, that's it. But I do think that the productivity of our parenting, the volume on that needs to get turned down quite a bit. And we're so hard on ourselves, but let's just say you are hard on yourself and you are thinking, I, yes, I'm, I, I want to be an effective parent. I think the irony of it is that you are a more effective parent and more productive. Like if you're really looking at these achievement outcomes, having time to connect and binge Gilmore girls is going to be more effective. It's just, I don't like the language of effective and productivity around this. And can we, because what we know for sure is that every single person needs release valves. Can we try to bond with our kids in release valves instead of like thinking that the bonding is always like, I, we always have family dinner, but I was like, is that a space that is like a relief, like a a space of like release and relief for them? Exactly. And so like, because what we, you know, every person, you know, who struggles with, you know, anger becoming, you know, something that is unhelpful rather than helpful you know, frustration, you know, manifesting into the physical, like all these things, it's because people are looking and and have not yet found the right kind of space of release. And in and, and these, like these places to just kind of like pull the thing and say like, Oh, I go for a walk. I go for a run. And, yep. and it's crazy because you notice it in teens, you know, I've spent so much time with teens in my life, whether that's mentoring or um, with Simon's kids. And, you know, when you see that someone's really stressed, Like, I always think like, well, what are you like, what, what, what can the, the community around this child do to like, for, to, to bond in a space of like the release valve, because 
that's where there can be like an easier flow of information to understand how this stress built to this place anyway. Like what is the place like, you know, does even if they're just 17 or 18, like, should they be running? Should they be doing this? Like, I, I mean, I know you, you speak a lot about movement and I mean, I know you're going to go through the five, but something <laughs> I loved is the, your distinction when you talked about the rules, the distinction between what was it? Limits and boundaries. Yeah. That was really revelatory for me. I, I think especially right now, and we can get into the the five R's, but one of the R's, spoiler alert, is rules. And I think that one is is sort of like, it's less pretty and it's less popular, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I really, really feel like that is, it's an important distinction to understand boundaries, which are about us Mm -hmm. and our relationships and the limits that we're setting around behavior and our expectations around behavior. And that both of those things are so important for safety, but they're so not sexy and current. And they don't feel like they go along with the other principles because the other ones are relationship, reflection, regulation, then rules and repair. And the thing about rules is that they only work if you have a strong relationship. Yeah. But you can't have rules in the absence of a strong relationship without it becoming a controlling battle, you know, that just feels like it builds more problems. Yeah. But I am most people who are listening to this or reading this book, I think boundaries are really hard to develop later in life. Yes. And it goes with that well-meaning love sometimes that boundaries and limits. So that category of rules are hard to implement because we feel it's sometimes a betrayal Mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel connected. It doesn't feel close. And so I just wanted to, when I was figuring out, like, I was like, what is a handful of the science that is so important for children's development and our development? Like, what do I absolutely have to have in there? I really struggled with the rules part because I know that it upsets people because sometimes it feels too rigid. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. 
And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What I loved about it was it's old school in a way that is like non-toxic because you do clarify. But I was talking to this child psychologist once who she was giving a talk to a group and, and I love her, but she was giving this talk and she was saying something. She's like, so I... And she was giving all these ways that she responds and she'd always just drop her tone down to a tone that is not even her speaking tone. And so I remember saying, I was like, I just got to say that like, that's not, if that's not even the tone you speak to a friend in, like, why is there like a certain like, kind of like monotone? Like, now, is that what you really want to do to your brother right now? And I was like, and also in the real world, exactly. if someone's crossing the street and your child is in London, and looks the wrong way and somebody says hey 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 they actually need to be able to hear a difference in like tonality to say like danger not right freeze da, yeah. da, da, da. but if you are always dropping down into some like you know it's i was like that's just like parenting should not create a, a, a space where your home is a non-reality yes and it's then so they artificial. are like freaked out when they get in the world and it's like listen like in the world there are rules like in the world like it just are and, and understanding <laughs> limits boundaries, rules, like that is, and and guess what? Like learn to identify them so you can see if they're unjust or, you know, inequitable or all these things. And you want to break the rules, but you do have to have like this idea of like, you know, it's like how not to shame this style, but like the people who are like, I never told my children no. And you're like, but the world will tell them no. Like, what do you mean? Like, you're going to, they're just going to be like, I live in a, like a, all yes, or ask them a question. Why household? And I'm like, what do they do when they go to McDonald's? Cause they'll end up there. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like and somebody's like saying something crazy. Like, what do you mean? Like you have it's not to, fair kind to of, them. like, it has to be grounded. And so what I really liked about seeing rules, because, you know, in a way, when you read any parenting book, because it really is such a new thing to have these ways of like having true curiosity about the self and how you parent. And it's not like, you know, there's, there's nothing really old school about this approach. I loved seeing that because I was like, thank you for being real. And it was almost like an actual, (laughs) and like maybe like an actual parent came in here and was like, well, first of all, like there's rules, like, because that's just, and, and it, and to me, I thought it was cool because again, it just made like so much of your book, it made me feel like I could do these things or I could opt out of certain things. I loved that. And I loved that all of your R's then lead to resilience. resilience. And that's, that's the thing that I think it's not happiness. It's not thriving, except ultimately all of the, we want all of those things for our kids. But first of all, if you want your kid to be happy, they have to have an understanding about rules, but there's Relationship comes first because relationship truly is what, you know, if you, if you can be in relationship, you can take toxic stress and they studied, you know, kids who are coming out of world war two, world war one. And when you have one caregiver with whom you feel safe and feeling safe includes having rules and boundaries 
you can move what is measured as the, what the science calls toxic stress, which kind of floods your brain with cortisol relentlessly. It doesn't stop. So it doesn't have a chance to recover and can lead to really, really harmful outcomes. It moves those experiences into what's called tolerable stress and tolerable stress has the chance, even though you don't wish it upon anyone to build resilience. Yeah. And the key to it, and I think this is so heartening. I think it's the most heartening thing about this whole field is that relationship is all it takes because that's free and it is, it just requires us and nothing else. Your partner doesn't require a partner. It doesn't require any, anything else. And so to me, that is like, what? There's a free and totally in my control way of making sure that no matter what, my child's not going to experience the kind of stress that leads to the kinds of terrible things we hear when we hear about toxic stress. And then on the other side of it, relationship also is there to bolster the experience of even positive stressors that that absolutely are necessary. You cannot have a childhood without positive stress. Positive does not mean that it's like exciting and good, but it just means it's the kind of stressor that is part of a system that is loving and working and just like, it's just a natural stretching or like mini tears of the muscles so that they can build and grow stronger. And all of that, gets you closer to that sort of resilience. And I'm careful about the word resilience because we put it on other people as like a quality. And I, I find that very harmful because the expectation is that somehow you, it's your fault if you're not resilient and that someone who is resilient did it all on their own. And I think that's just a false story, but relationship then reflection is kind of it gives you the opportunity to understand yourself and your child and be available to regulate regulation. We talked about so much there's you, you, you cannot think of a more important component of our existence than having capacity to regulate our nervous systems. Like we just can't walk through the world without a, a, a way of turning off our alarm system when we need to. And yet there are also times we need to make sure that there, there are real threats. We do have to ring the alarm bell. So you don't want it to be like, there's nothing. You don't want to disassociate from your life yeah, either. Exactly. Well, something I loved is that you don't emphasize resilience as this abstract idea. You actually talk about all of the almost like you know, entry points and on-ramps that lead to it. Because I know from right trying to write about resilience myself, it was one of the hardest pages to write in Remember Love because it's something that just means a million different things. And I think that it's like used in ways, kind of like vulnerability is one of those words too, where you're just like, what does this even mean anymore? And like, how how does it actually function? And Or even shame, I think is another word where totally. it just gets used and it's like all over the map. And so you, you, or you, you really wonder like, how do I get there? And so I thought it was really cool the way that this book shows you 
not how do you get there as a dense destination, but like, how do you just kind of get onto like the interstate that is like living and moving with resilience? If that makes sense. It totally makes sense. And I think that's the thing that that's the more doable thing. That's the reality is that we can't like, just, you know, say we're going to, we're going to have a resilient kid. I'm going to be a resilient person, but there are skills that you can build in your children and yourself that are highly linked with resilience. And when you add that to the five core principles, primarily relationship, you're giving your child the best shot at bouncing back from adversity, setbacks and trauma. That's just the reality. You can't, you can't change temperament, but you can give the tools and the exercises to each of your individual, you know, I talk about the the different kinds of flowers in your garden, but you can't change the flower. I didn't say this, but somebody said, basically you can't change the flower, but you can change the environment in which the flower grows. And that's how you build these resilient plants. Cause you're, you're not going to change that. You have one child who might be a little bit more cautious or a little bit more sensitive, but you can think about, okay, well, how can I help them build the necessary muscles to move through the world in a way where they know that that's how they operate and they can give themselves the room to get on that resilience, the on-ramp that you said. And when you combine the skills that you're helping them grow with the support that you're giving them through these five principles, that's the best shot they're getting. That's the best shot they're getting at resilience. And it's pretty, it's a pretty robust science that's been decades in the making. So I feel good about it. Like a lot of science is like not really relevant to every one of our kids. So I don't even bother with it. Like the minutia of this, the science of all the different things, like when you're, when you're first getting anxious about making everything just so perfect, which way the stroller's facing, let's say. Like, I remember when I had a little, like my first baby, there was an article in the New York Times about the stroller facing one way versus the other way and child outcomes. And I was like, well, this is a problem because someone's going to read this and hang their hat on it and think that it's like super important and maybe even get a fight in a fight with their partner because they didn't have the stroller in the right direction. And it was like a study with, for this particular group of kids in this particular setting, when you know, the weather was a certain way, it does not translate. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless high quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. 
and they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to NordicKnots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Well, and what I find and is that it also, what it really triggers in people is their own not enoughness, which we all struggle with. That's a, that's a universal thing. Universal. But sometimes the not enoughness manifests as like, I, I have an absolute opinion and I'm absolutely correct about this thing. Oh, no, no, you've just got to do this. Oh, no, no, no. You've got to get the chicken from here. You've got to get the da 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 like, yeah. like, You know, the, it gets very, like, the it manifests as, like, a control of, like, I I am absolute, sh- like, it's a, as a, not enoughness becomes what I know for sure. And, and it's so good. Yeah, because you're actually trying to control the things you can't control while not controlling yourself, which is the only thing you can control, which exactly. you talk a lot about in the book. And what I really also loved reading about in this book is because, you know, your, your podcast, which I am a devout fan and listener, I, something I thought was so interesting, even though I, it's not like you didn't write about it as it, as if it, as in the way of how it kind of pertained to your podcast being called raising good humans. But the, when you write about how we first survive and then we become wise and the kind of the, the, when our, the part of our brain that can kind of really take in and move and, 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 and build wisdom starts at 18. And it was so fascinating to me that, you know, that is when in Western world, like kind of the parenting in the nest ends. And so this idea that all of your parenting is in preparation for them to go into the world and build the wisdom that will inevitably like their brain finishes being cooked in a way and then they have the opportunity to be a good human or not. And you you could kind of only really be there as much as possible for that kind of first part of the development, because then they have much more freedom when they're going off to college or they're going off into the world. I know. And so I was like, because, you know, you and, and it's weird because everything you say, you have this kind of way of backing it with science and you and 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 with these incredible studies, but it also is information that feels really intuitive because all the time you hear people say like, well, yeah, then they just, I went off to college and then I like really became my own person. And you're like, no, you at 18, actually, like your brain started having like a hunger for like wisdom and self-building. And because somebody had helped you survive to that point. Right. None of us do this on our own. And I mean, the funny thing about the brain, which is like, a detail that if people are interested, they can see it in the book, but, and, and this is not, you know, it's not fully developed and it's important to know that, you know, your four-year-old of course is going to have trouble and need to co-regulate with you because the part of their brain, the part of her brain that is able to self-regulate isn't fully developed until at the earliest 18 and sometimes as late as your late twenties and in girls, it's typically a little, you know, it's closer to the 18 than the late twenties. And I know that that's, you know, like a whole other bag of conversation, but I think when you, when you, there are very few differences in brain development in that way, but it is interesting when you think back and you're like, where, what, what, what was going on for me in my life in that 18 through my twenties, like 
you really do realize like, oh, I get it now. Like that is kind of this beautiful, fully developing brain coming out. And if you imagine like, you know, when a horse is born and it starts walking, (laughs) like, I feel like that's, it's like you get out into the world and you've been yes, supported and developing, and you are always going to be supported. We're always going to be hopefully in these relationships with our kids, but there is a sense that this is the time that they are practicing to get out in the world with their fully developed brain to grow into their wisdom and to feel like they were supported and safe and in a structured and enough environment to get their legs going. And we can do that. And it's not, it's, it's doable. And if we just don't get stuck in some of this, I don't even want to use the word precious because I think it's, it seems negative that I'm saying this, but I do feel like we just get in our own way because of our, our sense of not enoughness that we, we don't allow ourselves to just kind of let our shoulders go down and trust that we are enough and we're exactly what our kids need and that it's not as complicated as it's made out to be. Like I was thinking about, of course, we could go through questions all day and all night. And I I used examples in the book because I know that people have specific questions, but the truth of the matter is that all the courses in the world and all the questions and answers in the world come back to kind of the same thing And we just like need to hear it maybe in different ways, but it's so simple. It really comes back to the same things, whether you have a baby or a toddler or a teenager, and it's only made complicated by the stuff that we impose on ourselves. It's really actually like, to me, I hope a relief that this is not the thing we have to make so painful. And I feel like it's about, you know, removing those blocks of like so much of what puts distance between you and your child is shame. So much of what puts distance between you and your child. And and we know this because it does it in our romantic relationships. It does it with friends is judgment is wrong or right is narratives we're creating. It's distraction. It's lack of like kind of quality, real awareness and attention and everything I think your child needs, you need. And I think that that's the kind of, I, I I kind of loved feeling affirmed in that and reading your book because I was like, yeah, you know, it's, it is, you can just think like, okay, what if I was talking to my friend and she was kind of not looking up from her phone while I'm talking, I'd be like, excuse me. Like, and so it's like, actually, if, you know, my kid is doing that, like, and they're, they're frustrated, like they're asking for the same thing I would want. Do you know? And I think that the more we work on befriending ourselves, the easier it is to have this kind of fundamental kind of baseline of friendship and and not that kind of like toxic friendship people talk about with parenting a lot where they're like, I'm their best friend. You're like, "Mm." first of all, like we don't even know like what we need to be doing as friends half the time because (laughs) friendships have these crazy roles of like, you know, well, another bag of conversations as you were Oh saying. my but God, it's important. That should be your next book. Yeah. But I, so I think that like, but the idea that we are kind of, um, you know, 
nurturing in ways that we know nurturing feels good to us is, is critical. Not even just in ways we know we need nurturing, because I think that a lot of that is kind of intertwined with our own experiences that may have been tough or traumas or whatever it is, but to say like, what nurturing would feel good to, I know feels good to me. And in that there's all of the kind of awareness that comes with the five senses that we can kind of give and be in community with, with our children, whether that's like how we see them, how we hear them, like touch all of these, you know, kind of all of these really intuitive things. And so I, I want to thank you so much, not only for this conversation, which to everyone listening there, I just need to tell you guys how amazing Lisa is because I'm in Louisiana at my mom's house. They are digging up the street behind me. So as she's been speaking, I've had to put my end on mute a few times because there's like a bulldozer outside. Oh my God. My kids ran in at one point, three dogs started barking at another. My mom, (laughs) I have a cough, maybe RSV. I'm not even sure. My mom went up the stairs. Like it is actually so chaotic. So the idea that we were able to have this loving focused conversation is completely because you're such a genius. This book is so incredible. It really was such a gift to me as I've been reading it over the break. I hope everyone gets this book or gets it for a friend or gets it for somebody for whether it's Mother's Day or to kick off the new year, because I I really loved it. And I'm not just saying that because I love you and I love your podcast so much. I loved this book. I love the way it's written. There's also this whole other kind of metaphor you have about trees and how their exhale is our inhale. And that is like a whole other thing I want to talk to you about, but I just, I'm so grateful for how it's written. It's so truly helpful and it's such incredible wisdom. So thank you so much. I'm I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. That means the world to me. That means the world to me. And the fact that you could do all of this in that mayhem shows that you are definitely a mother. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode with Aliza Pressman. Her book, The Five Principles of Parenting is out on January 23rd, and I can't recommend it enough. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Goop Podcast.